0: you know. National holiday doesn't mean we're taking off. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, I know you're uh, not in South Florida right now. You've been doing a little bit of jet-setting and enjoying uh, our our country's birthday.
1: Enjoying the country's birthday and headed to Phoenix now to go watch um, uh, tomorrow night uh, the NBA Finals. I've been to 51, 52, I think it's my 53rd NBA finals basketball game. So I'm pumped to go see. I uh, never thought I would be going to Phoenix for the NBA finals, <laughs> but we'll go to the games catch, games, catch games one and two in Phoenix and maybe games three, game three in Milwaukee.
0: Yeah, Ira, that's a good point. I mean, could you imagine even like a year ago, if someone said you'd be in Phoenix for the NBA finals, you would have not believed them, but. We do have our, our matchup, and it's going to be an, an upstart Philadelphia Suns team versus uh the Milwaukee Bucks, who are as of now without their superstar
1: yeah, I mean the phoenix is this is uh this is one of those things where everyone keeps talking about everyone needs the um the super teams, put the teams together, who's the best star, who is the best three players? But it just shows i mean the one thing I keep watching this thinking about this is that if you look in the history of the n b a the stars, the superstars, the other ones who stayed healthy. Uh, Tim Duncan won five titles. He stayed healthy. Kobe Bryant was the most, played every single game. Won five titles. LeBron four titles uh, in, you know for the throughout his career. Michael Jordan six titles. These players, and and so we're looking at these other teams like oh Philadelphia had injuries and and New Jersey. I mean uh, Brooklyn had injuries and the other teams had injuries. Well, that's why these other teams won multiple championships because they stayed healthy. And that's why when you have to look at why Toronto won the one years because Golden State got injured. So the point. Is yeah, you got these teams. I think when we look at the season starts, people say, well, who has a chance? Who doesn't have a chance? I think the point is that I do believe. People must say, oh no, it's only the superstars to win. But if you look at how injuries are have happened, and we predicted this when this whole, when the whole playoff started, I said there's going to be tons and tons of injuries. The players are going to play. Now I did not expect Atlanta to make it to the to the conference finals, but the fact is is that it, teams like Phoenix and Utah, um, they then Utah had their injury with Mitchell. It's just they stayed healthy, and that Phoenix and Milwaukee. Milwaukee was able to have less injuries than Allen did, but Phoenix was probably the most healthiest of any team, and that's why they're in the finals.
0: Ira, we got a great show on tap for you, and about uh, 7.40 or so, we're going to talk with Paul Westhead. Tell us about him.
1: Um, yeah, Paul Westhead is a very famous coach. He won a title. Talk about NBA. So he won the uh, NBA championship for uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, the ones where he talked about Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, coached there a year and then was uh, then was fired after 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 winning a title. Um, but we're going to have... So he has great stories about those, and he's also coached the Loyola Marymount team, one of the best college basketball teams, most exciting college teams. So I'm so excited. He had a new book out, and uh, I think it'd be great to have him on the show.
0: So let's go back into the uh, Milwaukee and Atlanta series. And this one was kind of... it's It's never the product you want when both teams best players are out but Milwaukee was the better team with with Trey Young gone uh without a doubt even with, with Giannis not on the uh, on the floor so let's go back to game 4
1: yeah I was I flew there to Atlanta was my first time I've been to of course Atlanta many times but I flew there uh for the game it's like from West Palm it's an hour flight uh took a subway there's a subway that goes from the uh the arena from the the airport to the arena i stayed right next to the arena you could stay for nothing no one is still staying downtown downtown atlanta is completely empty wow. the bars and restaurants everything even after the game there was like one bar that was open i mean you're talking twenty thousand people were at a game and after the game was over there was nowhere to go to drink or eat. and the game was over like at 10 30 11 o'clock at night and there was nothing on a on a tuesday night um, the Dominique Wilkins statue is right outside the stadium in there. and It's next to the Mercedes-Benz stadium, which is the football stadium. So they're literally almost touching each other. And uh, it, was, uh, it was good. I went over there and I had trouble getting... I mean, there were so many tickets that were available, and I just kept... It was one of those things where I kept waiting, waiting, waiting for it to drop, and then ended up going with a friend who was there, a meeting, and it was like, let's get two. Went over there and sat and... For, 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 I mean, the tickets must have dropped by like 70% in the last day of it. Because when you, I mean, you see all the tickets that were there, I'm like, there's no way they're going to be that expensive, and uh, but the arena was hard to get into. There was a lot of the concourses were filled. I mean, in terms of getting in, the lines I thought were really bad because I got there really early. But huge concourses and lots of food. I mean, there was so much food at that stadium. But of course, what I hate most—you cannot buy merchandise. They have one stupid little merchandise store, and like, you have more merchandise. You want to buy this stuff and see things. But the arena is weird because on one side, uh, before between behind the baskets are tons of seats. I just I don't like that. I, and I sat uh, foul line maybe twenty rows up, but I think it's one of the worst seats in basketball to sit behind the basket. Like, and where does arena have that like that? And then they have so many scoreboards and everything, but it's hard to see. It was like all over the place. I couldn't even find out like what's the score of the game, who is the fouls, how many points people scored, how much time is left. It was just like video everywhere, but not like a real scoreboard. Uh, but besides that, it was a it was a the I thought the fans were very loud into the game, standing up the whole game, which I of course didn't like so much, but more like a college atmosphere so I enjoyed being there and I was totally totally blown away by what happened I mean there was no at the about about an hour before the game we find out that Trey Young was not going to play and then you're like okay Milwaukee's gonna win they were favored by seven when it was announced I think it went up to 10 points but then the game started and it was like Atlanta went up to, on a 55 15-5 uh to start and then it was just uh it was just they were up 53 38 at the half just destroying, uh, just shooting threes. Bogdanovich was draining threes. Williams was draining threes. And it seemed like Milwaukee was just... Milwaukee, when they heard Trey Young was out, they were going to try. They didn't care. They didn't whatever. And then Giannis got hurt with about seven minutes to go in the third quarter. He fell down sort of on Capella. Capella fell on him. And it looked bad. Like, it's not one of those things where you fall and you're like, oh, he gets back up. I mean, when he fell he was like, must have screamed something because the Bucks players and staff all ran over to him. Everybody stopped. I think the game had to be stopped. It seemed like 10 minutes. And uh, then he, he had trouble even walking off the corner. His brother was helping him. And I was like right there when just seeing him and the pain he was in. It's amazing that he might be back for the finals because he looked, at, looked like he tore his ACL or something like that. But after that, after he came out of the game, that was totally over because that's when they suddenly went on the 25-10 to 10 run and uh, the Bucks were terrible. Middle I was waiting for Middleton to step up, but he had his worst game. He was 6 for 17, 16 points. Holiday was just as bad, 6 for 17, 19 points. And it was like one of those things where Bogdanovich and Williams and Herter just started all draining threes. And the game was over with like three minutes to go. And, and I'm like, wow. I mean, now it's now the series instead of two, you know, three one, and they were going back home, is now two two. And you're like, wow, now Giannis is Giannis, Giannis is hurt. Uh, Trey Young seems like he could be back. And you're thinking maybe Atlanta could steal this series and go to the final.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking, Ira. And I think, wow, like you said three times in that last, uh, you know, couple of, of sentences is how this got summed up. I didn't expect this series to be two to two. With Trae Young not playing in the prior game, it was just not what I was anticipating. And then I didn't expect uh, the Bucks to completely right the ship like they started to in game five.
1: In Game Five, I finally—I think you look at the Bucks. they are like you're waiting for this. this is, they played in Game Five like they played against the Heat. Just getting it into Lopez, getting into and, and Bobby Portis came in, and it was like we're just going to throw the ball inside. We're going to get rebounding, and it was the craziest, just the craziest start of a game. I mean, they were they were on such a they were they at one point, uh, you know, they were they were they at one point the Bucks shot nine for fourteen with five offensive rebounds. They were, they, I mean, at the beginning of the game, they were leading uh, 28 to 10. I mean, they, they went, they scored 28 straight points without every possession. So it's not like with the shooting percentage, they would, if they missed, they would score. It was such a blowout. I've never seen a start of a game where it's like when you score on 13 straight possessions in a game. And I try to see if that's a record, I'm not sure. But it was, it was just a total blowout. It was 28 to 6 points in pain. And then even, they're up by, the only thing I was scared about it for, you know, for the Bucks is they're up by 14. After the, you think they should be up like thirty. It was like such a blowout. Uh, but in the end of the game, they just ran away and won. Lopez, fourteen for eighteen, thirty-three points. Portis had twenty-two points, and then Holiday had twenty-five points and thirteen assists. And Middleton at 26 points. It was, it was like one of those things where there was just total, absolute domination. Uh, by and, and that's what you expected the Bucks to do uh, with using their inside. When Lopez runs around on the outside and shoots threes, it's not good. But when he goes inside and starts dunking the basketball with Porras, and Atlanta, besides Capella, really has no inside presence. Finally, they were able to, to run away with a game like that.
0: So um, let's go to game six here, Ira, because this was all that, all that she wrote here for, uh, for yeah, the I mean, Atlanta I think, Hawks. Go ahead.
1: I think this game, going into it, I did not know what was going to happen. It was like one of those things where the Bucks, you know, they start out slow, they're inconsistent in games – Milwaukee just without, Giannis isn't playing, and Trey Young, now they have Trey Young coming back. And I wasn't so like, but he looked good, like he was running around, moving around the court, but as the game went on, you just saw him, he didn't have that explosiveness, he only shot 4 for 17, wasn't making those shots, and I think that sometimes, like, in the previous games, uh, in game, in game 4, when they were able to use, uh, when, 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 uh, when, when Trey Young was able to take sort of advantage of the, when, he, when he didn't play. It was like, oh, my gosh, he's not going to be in the game. Bogdanovich was able to step up and score. It just seemed like they knew Trey Young was going to play and they had a game plan in, in place for him. And it's just one of those things where for the last three games, four, five, and six, I've never seen this ever in that basketball, that the team who took the lead never gave it up the whole game <laughs> from wire to wire. And really the one point, the second half, when I really thought that it was, like, close. It was at halftime. It was uh, 47-43. But then starting the second half, uh, Chris Middleton who I mean I think he's the most he's either super hot or super cold he scored 16 points in four minutes he ended up with 23 points in the quarter uh, they outscored them 44 to 29 and if it wasn't for Cam Reddish who really had Achilles problem had been out for like three months starting draining threes Atlanta would have been totally out of the game and they sort of made this they had a 21-7 run with like four months to go to try to hang in there but it was really Middleton putting that show on scoring those 23 points uh, in, in the third quarter that just set them apart and uh, Middleton with 32 points for the game. Holiday had 27 points, nine assists, and four steals. And Trey Young had only, as I said before, 14 points and, uh, in the whole game that he played, like 35 minutes. And Bogdanovich had 20 points. But it was one of those things where I, you looked at it and say, Middleton and Holiday, they're on the Olympic team. They're slowly superstars. Atlanta, besides Trey Young, doesn't have those players. And, uh, and that's what happened. And, and, and Milwaukee, without Giannis, and in many ways, when Portis, the way he played, which is tremendous, and Bobby Portis played in Chicago, went to New York a little bit, he gets rebounds, he knows his role, he can shoot the three when it's open. I'm not He's not nowhere near like Giannis. But the fact is that he plays a great role. And when, when Milton's hitting those shots, and Holiday's playing well, then, then they're able to win these games.
0: To Iron Sports. True oldie channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Paul Westhead joins us in a about- Oh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, let's go over to the other side, Ira. And so, Suns and Clippers, we left off at Game 5. Uh, right now, the series is 3-1, to one, Suns, and Paul and uh, Kawhi Leonard's out. So it's the Paul George show. I didn't have high expectations, and they did exceed them in this game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was—this was—Paul George came in Game 5. It was 3-1. We thought this was going to be the end of it for the Clippers. And George scored 41 points. Uh, and, and really, I mean— Again, people don't know what to make about Paul George. He either plays – I think his – he is not an elite superstar. I think he's a very good player, and I think he's had some great playoff games. Yes, he he played he, – we don't expect him to carry a team. I, I'm I'm giving Paul George a B for the playoffs, a B-plus. I thought he played – had so many good games like he had in game five, but then he had some poor games. But it was one of those things where they uh, – uh, the Clippers actually jumped out, uh, you know, to this lead to a 25 lead, and the Suns. I was like waiting for the Suns to do something, and the Suns just never really. Um, they took the lead at 62 seven, 62 61 in the third quarter, but then the Clippers scored the next 10 points, made it 91 78, and it's sort of at that point, you know, they just couldn't. They could. They, they cut it to four, but it was sort of at the end of the game. Didn't really have a chance to win. Um, but George shot 15 for 20, 41 points, 13 boards, six assists. Demarcus Cousins came in and provided 15 points. In, in eleven minutes, and it's just like everything they did. I mean, Clipper shot great from the line, and Chris Paul came back. So he was, of course. So he he's playing. He was zero for six uh, from three. Twenty two points. Booker at thirty one points, but not really well. And and they got away. The the Suns got away from getting the ball into eight. They only had ten points, eleven rebounds, and without Zubac in the game, it just seemed like it was just difficult. It had difficulty. It, it was a poor game for the Suns. it just didn't didn't play well. And. Uh, uh, you know, and, well, the other play is Patrick Beverly. So he, fa- he fouls Chris Fall, and, and as he fouls him, he jumps over him. And there was a question, with it a flagrant or not? He didn't call it a flagrant, but he was, like, taunting him over it. And Beverly, I think, gets away with so much of this. I mean, he's fouling, hard mm-hmm. fouls, everything. And I, I thought in that situation, that led to the next game in terms of Paul's problem. But, you know, of course, then we're going to the game six, you know, in the, in the final game.
0: Let's go over to Game 6 now, and this one didn't look good for the Clippers. And, you know, you knew that they kind of had to fall apart on them and that Phoenix was going to win, and they went out and showed showed that, that they were the team that needed to go on.
1: Yeah, it was Kawhi's out, Zubak their center. Zubak had of missed a game in two years. He was out, uh, and Beverly started hiding, scored seven points. And then at the end of one, it was 33-29, so you're like... Wow, I mean, the Clippers had come back from two 2-0 deficits. You're thinking, maybe they're going to come back in this game. But I, Beverly, he, he jumped over Aiton's back and fouled him trying to hit the ball. That should have been a flag. It, it looked like Aiton should have had a, a concussion on the play. They didn't throw Beverly out for that. They only called it a common foul. But then at halftime was 66-57, and uh, Crowder, we remember Crowder, Crowder from uh, the Heat, he was on fire. He spent 16 points, 4-6 for six from 3, and uh, the Suns were able to get you know, that sort of try to hang in there. But Paul, at the one point when the Suns got close, Paul scored 10 straight points. Uh, Paul had a three, Paul another two, another three. And it was like almost an eight nothing run by himself. Took, took the lead out to 97 to 83, 20 point lead. And, uh and that was sort of like, it was, that was where it was. I mean, he scored at one point point. Chris Paul scored, uh, uh, 14 out of 16 points, and uh, it was just, uh, it just one of those things where they, Paul was like, "You're waiting to see." Here's a player who was going to say, "Show." I mean, I got to give Paul credit. I mean, he he was on, he was on the, the, the he was traded to the Clippers and wanted to go to the Lakers and try to build that team there. And then they weren't happy with him. And then he traded to the Rockets and working with Harden, Harden wanted him there. They just went to Oklahoma City. He wasn't trying he never tried to create the super team. He was already just thrust into the to the idea. And then he goes to Phoenix, this great young team And and worked with them, and now he's in the NBA Finals. And if he could be the, I mean, he was second in the NBA award for the for the you know for the NBA regular season MVP. But really, this is what if he could win the Finals MVP. What a you know he's thirty six years old. What a what a you know capstone of a career for Paul. But he in that final game he had forty one points, eight assists, and he shot sixteen for twenty four. And it was like one of those things where it was really this was the Chris Paul game.
0: So Ira, let's do a little uh you know, get our thoughts here on what we're gonna see. You're obviously on your way uh to Phoenix now. You're gonna be you're gonna be at as many of these games as you can. I think it's gonna be a really good series. I'm thinking seven games here.
1: It, it's a question whether if Giannis comes back. And I think Giannis yeah, it seems course. like the people are saying that he looks like he's moving, he's working to come back, and so there's a good possibility that he's gonna come back into this. Um this is the Bucks' first time in the finals since 1974. They won with Oscar Robinson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They won the title in 1971. And then in '74, they lost seven games to the Celtics. And then Robertson retired. Kareem was traded. Never been back. The Suns—the last time where we there was back in like '93 when Charles Barkley lost to Michael Jordan. So it's been a long time for both these teams in the finals. And but I, I, I think I, I'm back and forth on it. I think the Suns will. I, I, I'm. I'm like 50-50. I think if Giannis comes back, I'll have to say this. I do think Giannis is going back healthy, and I, I'm going to say Milwaukee will win, and I think Milwaukee will win in seven. So I'm going to put that point where they'll win, even, even they would have to win game seven in Phoenix. But I think it's going to be very, very close. But I could see it go either way. Like if, if the Suns are draining the threes, no one can guard Paul uh, and Holiday. I mean, the key is Middleton and Holiday. They have got Chris Middleton has to score 35 points, shoot, make threes, and Holiday's going to have to shoot and make shots, too. If those two play, they're going to, they, and, and I think they're going to neutralize Booker and Paul, but if they don't, then, uh, uh, then uh, I, I think that, whereas, and the question is what Aiton does for Phoenix and how he's going to dominate the paint and those things.
0: So, uh, I run sports, True channel, and Mike Balsamo. Let's go over to NHL and. We had joked, you know, I made a comment about a lot of my fans who are Ranger fans were like, if the Islanders beat Tampa, we're going to see the Islanders win an easy Stanley Cup, and the better team went on, and it's just been really one-sided hockey. It's 3 nothing. the final game is in about a half hour, well, could be final game, uh, Tampa Bay in Montreal, but this was not what we, we were hoping for.
1: No, I think it was, you, you want to sort of, it's like Montreal, I, I, the, the game, so the, the first day they won 5-1, the second day they won 3-1, and it was one of those games where Montreal was in it, and then I even text you when it happened, and Montreal was like down 2-1, and the, they just had a stupid lazy pass, it was literally a pass behind the net, just to, 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 that was an easy pass for it. almost created a play for Tampa to score. It was like the perfect play that Montreal created to end the game. And then in Game Three, with all the excitement, they finally let fans back in Montreal with all the enthusiasm. And I was up, you know, I was watching the game. We're so excited, and everything, and then to come out and Tampa scores two goals in like the first four minutes, takes, <laughs> takes the crowd out of the game so fast and then just ends up a cruising to win. It's almost impossible to see how Tampa Bay, you know, how Montreal could ever beat Tampa in four games. Let it, You know, it, I just don't, of course, it's, it's they're up 3-0 and, and now teams in hockey have come back from 3-0, but I don't think Montreal is that team that will do
0: that. Yeah, it does happen more in hockey than in any other sport, but if you've been watching this, you know, prior 180 minutes of hockey, these are, teams are not on the same playing field and I anticipate Tampa going through tonight, even though it does look like uh, Alex Kalorn, one of their star forwards, might not suit up. Let's talk a little golfier, Ira, and we had the uh, Rocket Mortgage.
1: Well, I think what was exciting about the Rocket Mortgage Classic is not who won. It's really... uh, I think what the excitement about it was, uh, was, was certainly Bryson. I mean, <laughs> so Bryson, DCM below and his caddy. Now the question is, you're always, when you have like, who broke up with who did his caddy break up with him or did he break up with his caddy, but that it happened right before the event. Uh, they were actually were at the, uh, practicing for two days. And then the day, right. The night before it was announced that he's changed caddies. Um, and then I thought Brooks then added field of the fire by coming up. Brooks Kefka goes on and says, I love my caddy. He means so much to me. He's the greatest. <laughs> (laughs) So that was the one aspect of it. And then you get Phil Mickelson who said – so uh, a Detroit sports writer wrote a story about Mickelson and, and he was involved in a gambling. He once somebody owed him money, he owed him like a couple hundred thousand dollars and didn't pay it. It wasn't like Phil owed somebody money. And then the guy got arrested. This is like 25 years ago, but Phil was mad that they brought the story up because but it was a Detroit big Detroit story. So he's like, he's saying, I can't believe I came to this tournament. I like rocket mortgage. I want to help the tournament, but I'm never coming back here again because I don't want to be treated like this. And he made a story that would have ran newspaper that nobody would have really talked about. About because he then made a big comment about this, and everyone made a big deal about the story. <laughs> so then Phil and Phil had to backtrack and say, "Well, maybe if everybody's nice to me, I'll come back." <laughs> and that became a whole thing. Of course, he finished like in seventy-sixth place. And Bryson, with his new caddy, missed the cut. Um, and uh, Cam Davis beat Troy Merritt on the fourth playoff hole. So now this has been two tournaments where two journeymen, like not really I won much, have now won. Or, like one last one was uh, Harrison Busby. Kramer-Hitcock on the eighth playoff hole last week, and now Cam Davis beat uh, Troy Merritt on the fourth playoff, playoff hole. and Yaka Neiman was also in the playoff, hole, playoff with that, but uh, it was his first victory, uh, and, but it was like one of those things like, yeah, where you're now getting these events where uh, Patrick Reed and Ricky Fowler, they finished 32nd, Bubba Watson briefly had the lead, and Bubba Watson's been playing great. Now, the, the British Open is not his, uh, his best tournament, but if people look, Bubba Watson has really been getting a lot of top ten finishes, top five, Finishes uh, and it's like someone who a couple years ago were thinking, "Wow, Bubba's must you know his time has passed. He's really right in his game uh, and played well to, be, to finish division six and actually holding that lead there." And Hideki Matsuyama, the uh, the winner of the Masters, he actually had to withdraw because of COVID, um, so he'll be out. But they think he'll be back for the British Open, but that's a, a question whether he'll be back to be able to play the British Open.
0: It's not every Tuesday night that we get a big spectacle to watch that uh, you can get all the community up wanting to pay attention to, but we're gonna have that this week. It's Another version of the match, and this one's going to bring in the the very uh, polarizing Bryson DeChambeau.
1: I have never seen so much advertising you know they didn't even like for the time they have every time you turn something on that's all people are talking about if you go on any website there that this is like the biggest golf i mean that's what people it's going to be uh, tom brady phil mickelson and aaron Rodgers in, against and against Bryson and and it's going to be uh the first nine holes will be match play where they'll use best ball format and then where they'll just follow like whoever has the best shot at that time and then they're going to do a modified alternate shot on who is going to to play with candy cap it's, it's a crazy scoring system it's not really they created this whole system for this, but I see that Bryson and Aaron Rodgers are a slight, slight favorite, but uh, it'll be great. I mean, you, Tom Brady's been trash-talking, Phil's going to be trash-talking, Aaron Rodgers going to be trash-talking, and of course Bryson's going to trash-talk, so I think everyone's looking for this to be epic. I mean, this could be really, they finally got it right with uh, I mean, they've had some these, these match play competitions that have been exciting. This might be the one that, that really does it, and that's why they've been advertising it so much, and it's going to be Tuesday night. Now, it's, it might bleed into the finals, though, because the game is tomorrow night Too, I'm gonna have trouble watching it because I'm gonna go up and go into the finals game. So I feel bad that they, I wish that they could have put it on on an off night when they didn't have the NBA finals because the finals are Tuesday, Thursday,
0: and Sunday this week. So what's next on the calendar for golf?
1: And it's just really the John Deere after this and then the British Open in two weeks. And we'll be excited for that. And then the Olympics. <laughs> and then you have, a, and then you have another time period where you're going to have just the four Americans, Thomas, Morikawa, Shuffley, and Bryson going to be there. And then just a World Golf Championship event. And then the three playoff championships, Northern Trust, BMW, and Tour Championships, because really you're going to see the, the true play of the fields. Are, there's probably five more tournaments left in the year that you're going to see the strong fields of golfers. And you think oh, it's July, whatever. But, uh, you, like, We'd like to see a couple more tournaments out here. where you are going to see all the all the great golfers playing.
0: Let's uh, go over to uh, tennis, and this is uh, an important week because we're doing we're seeing Wimbledon.
1: <laughs> well, this is the middle week. This is the middle day, and today was the they call it manic Monday because all all the final round of sixteen, all the final sixteen players. Uh, uh, in the men's and the women's play, then that creates the quarterfinals and the women play tomorrow, the when, and Tuesday the quarterfinals and the men's quarterfinals are on Wednesday. And uh, as expected, Djokovic is just rolling through this. Uh, he lost one set his first match, but he just looks so comfortable. I mean, without the doll in the tournament, these other younger players haven't played on grass in two years. It's a huge advantage. I mean, here's someone who's won the Wimbledon many times and he is at the top of his game on a service that he loves uh, and they're really the, uh, the only person you could even imagine beating him would be Federer, who has not really played the last two years. Now, two years ago, Federer had match points against Djokovic in the final in a classic match, but it's hard. Federer's played well, but if you're just watching, as I watch both players today, Djokovic is playing at another level. I cannot see unless he hits an umpire with a ball or gets <laughs> defaulted or slips or, or and falls and hurts I just don't see how he does it I mean it's like he's now for his next match in the quarterfinals he plays Fuksevich who's not even it was an unseated player and then we'll either play Shapovalov or or Karacho of, and easily, I think, have no problem with that, with any of those. And then you like to see Federer on the other side. I mean, if you get to see Djokovic Federer next Sunday breakfast at Wimbledon, that'll be the match to see. As expected, the Tsitsipas lost in the first round, Rugleb lost. These, uh, this, the younger players are not comfortable on grass. That doesn't suit their game, how they play, and they're not familiar. They don't play it enough, and that's why they're struggling. And that's why Djokovic has such a huge advantage in this tournament. I just, I mean, I would be an. I mean, he's a below even money favorite. It was going into the tournament, which is unheard of yeah. in a tennis tournament when you have seven. You have to win seven matches and seven rounds of matches. But Djokovic uh, uh, looks like he's rolling along.
0: And I believe Titsipas lost to a good friend of uh, the show, Francis Tifo.
1: Tifo had a big win, exactly
0: huge win. Cool stuff. What about the women's side?
1: Well, Serena in the first, she had to to withdraw after being injured in the, her first match. And the story was Coco Goff who made it to the quarter to the round of sixteen, going to the quarters today, but lost today. Um, she has been playing really, really well and she's only seventeen years old, so every time she makes a run she has her game is so suited. I mean, Everyone's saying, just watch her. Like, You just got to think in a couple years, like she's just going to be winning major after major after major. But there's really, Ash Barty's the number one seed, and she's left. And there's no Americans now of the quarterfinals. There's only, only three seeds and none Americans. Uh, so we had Kennan, who was the fourth seed American. She was knocked out in the second round. Venus was knocked out early. But, of course, Serena lost. And uh, Madison Keys made it to the round of 16 and lost. And Sloane Stevens made the third round. But it's unfortunate. I mean, Americans usually do well in this tournament. Um, And so many, I think we had American women who were like, Thirteen or fourteen started in, in the main draw of 128, and to have none in the quarterfinals is is sort of sad for for the Americans. And Ash Barty, who we saw at the Miami Open and won the Miami Open, I mean, she is just someone who is like doesn't have a great serve, doesn't really do anything great, but she's number one in the world because she wins these type of tournaments, sort of lets everybody else lose and be able to hit winners. And she's from Australia, it's just a very exciting player. It's not an exciting player, but someone who it just continually wins these big tournaments and, and plays well uh, in the majors.
0: So, Ira, let's talk a little college sports, and this is groundbreaking for the athletes themselves in that they can now start getting paid off their names, image, and likenesses. And when I first heard this, I really didn't know what to think of it, but a few really good points have been brought up to me, like things like – I've heard athletes say that there was a lot of athletes who would have stayed another year at college, but their family really needed the money. They had to go pro to, to support their family. So that this is something that will kind of help out an athlete like that. And then I also heard a, a good theory on this. Like, you know, what about these players that skip uh, games to just to go to the pros? Now, say it's the the guaranteed rate bowl. They could guaranteed rate can say, hey, I'll give you a hundred grand to show up and play this game to make our bowl better. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this.
1: Totally. This is the wild, wild west of it. I mean, that's where the, story, the big story was Reggie Bush. So Reggie Bush, years ago, his, uh, some boosters gave his parents a house or something like that to live in, and it was questioned about that. He won the Heisman Trophy. They had to give up. They had to vacate all their wins, the USC did. He had to give up. His only person had to give up his Heisman Trophy, and, and they forced him to do that. Now he says, I want my Heisman back. Like, I, you're going to let people, these players, are all going to make millions of dollars. You're going to have players signing two, three million dollar deals that are college football players. And, these, and now got some of these players ever got yelled because they did T shirts, they signed autographs like Johnny Manziel signed autographs for $100, those type of things. You're, you're going to get, you're going to look all these athletes that were, were suspended and punished for doing these things. Now it's not going to be just a few hundred bucks, it's going to be millions of dollars. These are players that are going to get millions and millions of dollars. And it's totally a wow, west. And it's exciting. You're starting to see some like, uh, they're not just signing with like the uh, car lot down the street, they are signing with creative artists. You're seeing, you're going to see shoe deals. Um, and it's all sports. I mean, it helps women's sports too, because a lot of the, the, women have a great social media presence and they're able to then monetize that. Uh, as we had, uh, you know, we talked about, uh, Chris Maloney was on our show, the volleyball player from, uh, Nebraska. But the, the point is this is going to be, you're starting to see these things. You're like, wait, are they professional? Are they, and look, it's something they should have done. They should have, this should have been implemented years ago because the point is that the schools did not want to pay the players but this is the way the players will be able to get money and not worry about now how the pressure the schools are. But then you're going to have athletes that say, wait a second, I can't monetize myself. I can't make money. This isn't fair. Then I should get some money. So there is going to be, there could be some problems on these teams where, where you might have star players not making any money and then have like the offensive linemen have a great Twitter account or whatever and getting somehow getting uh, money from that. So it, it's just, it opens up so many possibilities of what's going to happen and you're going to see complete. But I do think the point is that the schools like the Alabamas and the Clemson, they're still going to benefit because they, they're going to have the best systems in place and they're going to be on TV. And you might be right. People might, the idea of the vassal players that we're going to go to maybe a G League where they're not going to be so popular, they might want to go to a Duke or a Carolina and have that visibility to be on TV all the time to help with their social media following.
0: And so, you know, they're saying Arch Manning, who is the uh, Manning's nephew, he's the the brother Cooper, uh, who wasn't an NFL player, they're saying he could make $10 million before he's a freshman in college. Like, that's a little ridiculous to me. I, and of course, he doesn't need it.
1: Well, I think what's going to happen is that's going to, it's probably, that's what if we're going to say uh, 10 years ago, it's going to be, you're not going to be surprised by that at all, because that's what's going to happen. I mean, certainly once they start doing this and these players sign these contracts, the genie's going to be out of the bottle. You're never going to see them go back on that.
0: Uh, let's uh, talk a little baseball here. Weird weekend. I, I came across a stat that the uh, the Chicago Cubs and the Brewers were playing last week. The Brewers went down 7-0 in the first inning, won the game by eight runs. That's the only time that's ever happened in baseball history. Later that night, Aroldis Chapman gives up seven runs, and the Yankees lose uh, on a walk-off, and it's just been a bad week for the Yanks.
1: Uh, the Yankees, I mean, yeah, the Chapman loss was terrible. They're 42-41. and 41. They're 10 games back. Uh, and even Brian, even Brian Cashman says the team stinks. Uh, the Red Sox, and I think what's surprising is the Red Sox are so hot. Winning nine out of ten games, they're four and a half now over Tampa, and, uh, it looks like they're gonna, they'll win this division. And, uh, Tampa, Tampa's strong enough to get the wild card. I mean, it's almost like it's set. What's gonna happen is that, uh the White Sox are six over the Indians, White Sox will win their division, and Astros will win their di- either the Astros or A's, but now they're starting to pull away from the A's. And those are the you know, it looks like Astros, the Red Sox, the White Sox, Astros win the division, and the wild card will be the A's in Tampa. And we still have half the season to go. And you're all that's what I'm looking <laughs> at. Like right now it's like hard and you're gonna see maybe during the trading deadline, you're gonna see a lot of trades being made as these teams who are out of the playoff run are gonna start making some big trades.
0: I, I do think it's gonna be a very, very busy trade deadline. And it's usually not like that in baseball, but I have a feeling a lot of uh, talent That gets moved around a lot of prospects. Let's talk auto racing.
1: Um, well, I mean, I think the key is the Austrian, Austrian Grand Prix. Uh, we talked about before, Verstappen uh, over Hamilton. Just uh, the Red Bull team is dominating. Uh, Hamilton, it can't. he finished in fourth place. Uh, there was no way he could keep up with Verstappen. He won again. He's now had uh, nine races. Verstappen's won five times. He has a 182 to 150 advantage in points. Uh, and it was like one of those races where Hamilton's car was damaged. He couldn't stay. He, he needs everything to go right to beat Verstappen. It's, uh, it's good. I love watching these races on Sunday morning and they really have the 18th It'll be the, they only have three more races this summer uh, the Formula 1 and then I, I'm talking about it because next year I can't wait for the, for the Formula 1 I've, everyone excited for it to come to Miami and South Florida at the Hard Rock Stadium it's going to be just a spectacle I'm I talking to ticket brokers and I think it's gonna be one of the most expensive tickets they've ever had here in South Florida with all the international people who and love watching Formula 1
0: and Ira just a minute till we get to uh, Paul Westhead but uh, Big UFC fight this weekend
1: yeah, I mean, McGregor Poirier in Vegas, uh, this is one of those things where and we talked about last week, Conor McGregor, is he able to, he hasn't won, it seemed like a UFC uh, match in five years, and we keep talking about him, and, 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 and he's lost. It's like is he, he hasn't fought or he's lost and he looked bad in losing, and Poirier uh, beat him a year ago, a few months actually, a few months ago, and you know what's going to happen in this match? Poirier's still the favorite in this, but uh, this is like one of those matches where you think McGregor, it, it, you say, you, I, I don't, I'm, you, the, your mind says there's McGregor is just way past his prime. He should even had this bout unless he was Conor McGregor. And it should but the point is, I thought he against uh, Mayweather would have came out and been terrible and, and he played and he fought great. And McGregor has just, he has befuddled the critics so many times in the past, even when he was younger. Uh, this could be one of those times where he steps to win, but I, I just do not. I think Poirier is just a better fighter. I think Poirier beats McGregor again, uh, and I don't think he ends McGregor's career, but it, this is definitely going to be. There's a point where McGregor cannot carry these cards anymore.
2: <laughs> no,
0: you're absolutely right. Let's go to Paul Westhead here on IRON Sports.
2: This is IRON Sports, 95.9, 9, We are honored to have Paul Westhead, uh, one of the most famous coaches in basketball. He coached the L.A. Lakers to a title, and he also coached Loyola Marymount, one of the most exciting basketball teams ever. And he, he just came out with a book called The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball. Thanks a lot, Paul, for coming on IRON Sports.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, Ira.
2: So I was asking, I know that you're Philadelphia and everything. And I, I worked, I went for coach Fran Dumphy at the university of Pennsylvania. I was a statistician. Oh my gosh. So Fran's been on our show a couple of times and, and I called him last, last night. I said, now what's your, you know, I, did you guys miss? Because he, he played at LaSalle and you coached like right after. And I, I didn't know if you actually overlapped, but he, he said you, you over you missed him by like a month.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fran graduated before I arrived, but, uh, uh we were neighbors for a number of years in the Drexel Hill community outside of uh Del- in Delaware County outside of Philadelphia so i know franny very well he's a terrific coach
2: yeah and he sa- he says hello he says hello to you but uh you grew up in philly and you were not one of the great all-star players that we think from Philly you know there's been a lot of great blitz. you were you got cut by your high school basketball team three times and by but you worked and worked and worked and were able to be you know go to St. Joe's on a scholarship which is great but what insight you know as someone who was not a superstar but actually grew and developed as a player did it help you later on when you're coaching players because you're not always going to have superstars
3: well, I I had a lot of time uh when I got to Saint Joe's under coach Jack Ramsey sitting on the bench <laughs> observing him and, and his team and, and how he made adjustments in the game. It is kind of humorous though. Uh years later when when I was coaching, uh, I said to one of my players, I said, Well you know the the B play and he looked at me. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about, coach and I I did not remember any of Ramsey's plays. So One truism that I've found out over the years, basketball players, for the most part, don't know the plays that coaches give them. (laughs) They act like they do, but they really don't.
2: so and then you got when you're done you were going to be a professor but instead you had this this itch to coach but it was hard to find jobs you were coaching you're trying to get it you got turned down by two high school jobs really trying to get that but you finally latched on to LaSalle to St. Joseph as assistant and then went to LaSalle and had a career there but all in Philadelphia so that was exciting to be in that Philadelphia scene which is everybody we've talked about coach Dumphy and other players you know what a great area to to just be involved in basketball
3: yeah, I mean that's my whole background. You know, I grew up in the streets of West Philadelphia, and then uh, went to West Catholic High School, and then the St. Joseph's College. And so, uh, you know, as as I mentioned in the book, my my grade point average was three point four, and my points per game average was two point three. So, uh, I I was more a scholar than I was a player. But uh, I always had the, the urge to, to coach basketball and, and finally got a chance uh, uh, when I came to Cheltenham High School. I actually coached in high school for five years before I went to college.
2: Wow. So you're at LaSalle. You, you were, I think, eight years at LaSalle. And Jack McKinney, uh, someone was someone who you played for before, says he, he's got a job at the Lakers as the head coach, and he asked you to be the assistant. So that's quite a jump, going from an, a LaSalle head coach to the assistant coach to the Lakers. And at that time, as you wrote in your book, there wasn't like the 20 assistants they have on the bench. There was just one assistant, so you were the well, look, assistant to the Lakers.
3: Yeah, I was it, Ira, and when Jack called me, uh, he said, I'd like you to be my assistant. It took me about six seconds <laughs> to say yes, <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, So, I mean, it was a great opportunity that Jack McKinney gave me, and uh, coming to Los Angeles literally changed my life and my family's life.
2: And you joined the team at a time where it's not like this isn't just any team. You have... Arguably the greatest player of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, on the team. They just drafted Magic Johnson, so this is uh, this is the definitely the excitement of the NBA and basketball and, and what we talk about those times. And, and you talked in your book how you immediately befriended Kareem and started that long relationship you had for that you carried over till to this day. Yeah,
3: I mean, uh, my relationship with Kareem started out in the right foot. I walked in to a practice that was going on, Jack McKinney said, why don't you go down the other end and work with Kareem? He was doing something else. I said, okay. So I went down and he was in the low post. So I passed him the ball and he shot it and made a jump hook. And I passed it 25 times in a row. He made all 25 of them. And he looked at me and he said, thank you very much. I said, well, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, I, I went back to Jack and I said, you know, this coaching in the NBA is really easy. <laughs> But what I didn't figure out was that's exactly how Kareem wanted you to handle him. He did not want you to overcoach him. He did not want you to preach to him about what he should do or shouldn't do. So I was the perfect fit for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
2: So you're twelve games into your first year. This is back in nineteen seventy nine, and uh, you're twelve games into your into your first your assistant coaching. And Coach McKinney has a bicycle accident and is injured in the hospital and cannot coach. And you're suddenly thrust into. You didn't know if you were going to be coaching one game the rest of the year, and it was just a weird situation, which we don't see a lot in sports where you see a head coach unable to coach and then suddenly assistant thrust into the coaching duties.
3: Well, uh, this was really unusual back then. Uh, When Jack was in the hospital, the next day, we had a game. So I went to the shoot-around, and when I showed up, it was the players, the trainer, and me. (laughs) So it was either the trainer was going to run the team or I was going to run the team. So talk about out of default. uh, You know, I took over out of default, and... Even in that game that evening, uh, we're losing to the very end. And I'm saying to myself, well, this is my last game. And uh, Jamal Wilkes makes a spectacular jump shot, and we win. And, you know, I I live another day and and eventually uh, uh, get to coach the team for the season.
2: And then you had a chance to choose an assistant because you were going to get one, your one assistant and something, we're down here in South Florida and West Palm Beach, but you chose Pat Riley, who was just the broadcaster to be your assistant. I know they were pushing Elgin Baylor, but you chose Pat Riley to be, and as his first, I guess his first coaching job was to be your assistant.
3: Yes, it was. Uh, uh, I had to uh, two or three times go to Jerry Bust, the owner, and he would look at me like, uh, who do you want again? I'd say, uh, Pat Riley, and he'd say, ah, I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, but eventually, uh, he, he said, okay, and, and Pat became my assistant. And uh, uh, he was the perfect fit because I knew him from uh, traveling with him in the early part of the season. He knew the league, knew players. Uh, so uh, he gave me what I didn't have, the knowledge of the NBA.
2: Wow, and then your coaching... So you're interested in this mix where you have this, all this talent, you have magic, you have Kareem, you have Wilkes, and suddenly McKinney is getting better. So it's the question is, can he come back and coach? Are you going to still coach? And you discuss in the book how difficult because you're meeting with Jerry Buss, you're meeting with the, with your team, and it was like through, so not only did you have to coach a team, you actually had to deal with the fact that maybe the coach is going to come back and try to coach and wasn't even resolved until like the last week of the season that you were going to coach it through the playoffs.
3: Yeah, that was a tough time, uh, Ira, to be honest, because, uh, everything that I had going for me, uh, was due to Jack McKinney. So the very person, uh, who got you there is now trying desperately to recover from injury and to return to his role as head coach. Uh, um, the bus and his doctors, uh, determined that Jack was not ready to return this season. So uh, it was really out of my hands. And uh, uh, because of that, I, I finished the year.
2: So and then you get to take the team to the NBA Finals, 1980 NBA Finals. So the most one of the most famous basketball games of all time but first in game 5 Kareem got hurt in the game in the in, in uh the forum in, in LA he gets hurt in the game and still finished out of the game hitting a game winning shot and then you fly to Philly and you make one of the decisions that people talk about forever is we're going to who's our center and you decide to start Magic Johnson the rookie uh point guard at center
3: yeah i mean uh, I, I did make that decision and it was on the flight to Philly at you know, to be honest, again, I looked around and I didn't have many choices. Uh, the only other big man we that could fit would be Jim Jones, who was our starting power forward. They did decide to, to do magic because uh, it was like symbolic that uh, we had this young uh, player who can do many things. And uh, I hope that he would. Confused the Sixers, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, he was spectacular in his, uh, his, his play that night, scoring 42 points.
2: So, and then you come back uh, for the second, your second year, after you won the title, come back the second year, and then you're dealing with what really has been, you know, the whole Kobe Bryant-Chack thing, which some of our listeners have heard from a more modern time, but the fact that Magic wants to say, this is my team, and Kareem is like, no, I'm the all-star, one of the all-time greats, and it was like this friction between Kareem and Magic, and you're sort of in the middle of this, plus you have the ownership, and, and you're dealing with all these issues for that second year. That was really difficult, but, you know, something that other you know coaches have dealt with in the past, in the future, since
3: then, yeah, that's I. I never thought of the Kobe Shaq uh, combo, but it was probably similar. Uh, the the difference, well, the reality was that because of his excellence and proven excellence, I sided with Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Uh, he he was the man for this team. He was the one when it was crunch time. I wanted the ball to go to. I wanted him to take the last crucial shot because, uh, he, he never faltered and he had years of experience behind him. So, uh, I picked Kareem as my leader.
2: Yeah, and then, unfortunately, so in the third year, so you were there one year, was sort of most of what the first year, the second year, your full year, come back your third year, um, and you hadn't won the, you, hadn't, you lost in their first round of the playoffs that, that other year. Come back your third year, and that's when the friction really develops between Magic and Kareem and you, and, and, you know, this is something that really hasn't been discussed about, and that's why your book is excellent, because you haven't talked about this much, but just the whole dynamics of what happened. Did Magic force you out? Did Magic make the demands? How that was going, because you were forced out, I guess in the, before the 12th game of that season uh, between and the friction between you, Magic, and even the team?
3: Well, yeah, there, there's a couple of components that, uh, that I, I do talk about. One was, in, in fairness to Magic Johnson, uh, he had uh, knee surgery the season before and uh, I could tell right away that he was not the same Magic Johnson of his rookie year. So he was still working out his his game, he just had lost the step, and and for great athletes, when they lose a step, they're not the same players, and it, and it kind of works on them. So that was working on Magic. Um, I did have an issue with him in Salt Lake City uh, at the end of the game. He missed an assignment, and he wasn't really paying attention at timeout. So I talked to him after the game by himself in another locker room, not to. Uh, confront him with the team and he unfortunately took it the wrong way and said he didn't want to play anymore for us and the next day Jerry Buss fired me so uh, Magic's objection forced me out but to be honest I think the Lakers were looking to move me they they were unsatisfied they weren't happy with uh, how I was coaching even though it was a five-game winning streak we just completed.
2: And it was funny, you said in the book that you were replaced because they said they won at Showtime, which Pat Riley is synonymous with now the word Showtime, but you really then, after that, started to be, you know, you created Showtime because they said you didn't play fast enough and now you're known as the fastest coach ever. (laughs) So I thought that was ironic. Yeah, Yeah,
3: it's very ironic, Ira, because, you know... uh, ever since my LaSalle days in the 70s, if there's any one thing I always did, I always pushed the envelope. I always wanted to play fast. And and I think much of the discontent among the players was that I was trying to play too fast, and they didn't like that kind of ritual.
2: So, and just to find it, so you, after the Lakers and you sort of refined your theory it's about basketball, and, and, and think about that, you know, maybe a hundred thousand basketball coaches. You are best known for this speed game and the idea of running to spots on the floor, triangle rebounding. You even were so careful because you wanted to get the rebound so fast that you had the people pull the nets down so they could, uh, so they could get the ball out of the net. And then the referees by the end of the games that you're coaching, the referees stopped running up and down the floor. They would stay at midcourt. So talk about the whole idea about the speed game and, uh, and your thoughts behind it.
3: Well, my, my thoughts behind the speed game uh, is very simple. Uh, uh, and, and In fact, we were better at running fast break when the other team scored. That's why I was worried about the nets. We, we were better at taking the ball out of the net and running our fast break. We could do that in three seconds. On a missed shot, a defensive rebound, it took us a little longer, maybe five or six seconds, because everybody's not in a set position. But my whole concept was get the ball down court, take a quick shot before the defense gets ready. I mean, I'm not good enough to coach five against five. I wanted to have five on three or five on two. Uh, So I was greedy. I wanted easier (laughs) shots. And the way you get easier shots is you have to get down there quickly.
2: So and it was this was a day time when people weren't using the threes as much so you talked in your book how what Golden State is doing is not what your speed game it's is not. Golden State's completely different they're actually setting up and running plays that you're not you're nothing like Golden State
3: correct I mean I, uh, I admired Golden State over the last half dozen years uh, they, they made me like the speed of their game, but it wasn't like me they uh, they just went down pretty fast and found uh, Thompson and Curry open, and they just bombed away. My team wanted to get the quickest shot. So if we could get a a lead lob pass or a layup in two seconds, we did that. We weren't that conscious of of three-point shots.
2: And then you were able to apply this theory to Loyola Marymount. And I, I've been to Loyola's gym. It's very small. But you go to Loyola and you get lucky, the fact that Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, two of the best college basketball players I've ever seen, decide to transfer to Loyola. And you're like, okay, I might have the team that I can you know, experiment with this and see what could happen.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's my career in coaching changed when Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, and also – Corey Gaines came from UCLA, so the three of them uh, just embellished our talent level that they wanted to play fast, they had the ability to play fast, and they committed to it. So everyone followed their lead. So everything changed with, with the acquisition of Hank and Bo and Corey.
2: Yeah, and it wasn't just playing. You're also pressing on defense. So not only are you playing fast on offense, you're pressing on defense. And it's hard to find people to buy into that, especially superstars like Kimball and Gathers. But they just loved it. And you mentioned in your book how Gathers not only led the the country in scoring but also rebounding. Because the point is if you're going to miss your shot and you're on a fast break, a guy like Gathers who's running down real fast can get the rebound and lay it up all the time.
3: Yeah, you you hit upon uh, the crucial success of the fast break with the quick shot uh, and with the defense not really ready to defend there is this golden opportunity that after the shot rebounds are abundant because they're not blocking you out like they would against normal half-court defense so players like hank gathers they just flourish with uh my players like jeff fryer who shot threes in a quarter of a second he'd shoot them anywhere and Gathers and Kimball uh, would just go down the lane and get second shot. So it, re- it was really the second shot that made my fast break offense work.
2: We're talking to legendary coach Paul Westhead on 95.9 Water 6.9 West Palm Beach. Uh, that 89-90 year, I, I, some of the most classic games of all time. You played an overtime game against Shaquille O'Neal and Chris Jackson. It was 148-141 to 141 in a college basketball game, which is amazing. You beat Gary Payton at Oregon State. Um, just an amazing – ranked number 22 in the country. I remember watching all, the, all your games. So much fun to watch. You go into the tournament and, and into your into the conference tournament ready to set like this is our chance to' you know you, you guys who you were in the book how we had a chance to win the, the national championship and then Hank gathers unfortunately passes away in the second game of the tournament
3: yeah I mean that that changed everything uh, it's actually been uh, 30 years ago uh, they actually uh, erected a, a statue for Hank uh, and all the players and coaches returned to Loyola Marymount a couple months ago to honor him. And it really feels like three seconds ago, uh, this uh, giant of a man uh, dunking the ball and coming back to play defense and collapsing and never getting up. Uh, the, the grief that we experience uh, then and now is, is ongoing.
2: And you mentioned in the book how Eric Spoelstra the coach of the Heat was right there when he when he collapsed only a few feet away.
3: Yes, uh Eric was was on the Portland team and uh uh unfortunately uh he he was you know he was right near Hank but uh all of us were like you know totally stunned.
2: But surprise, you know, amazingly, the entire team rallied around Bo Kimball, around the memory of Hank, and then you went on this uh, tremendous run in the NCAA tournament, where you beat New Mexico State, you beat defending champ Michigan, and then you beat Alabama. Uh, so then you, in the elite eight, you faced UNLV, who ended up becoming. Are, you know the national champion, one of the arguably one of the best teams of all time, and a team that you played earlier in the season and felt comfortable that you had a chance to beat, and uh, but you but you lost it. But what a run in that tournament for the three wins that you had, and also the game against UNLV.
3: Yeah, I mean it was a, it was a great run, and and to be honest, Ira, the the, the players had taken on a different approach. Uh, they they were doing it for Hank Gathers, but they. Could care less about winning or losing. They just wanted to play. Uh, it was their way of, of honoring him. So, when you don't think about winning or losing, ironically, winning becomes easier. <laughs> uh, so they were doing things that they probably weren't capable of. I mean, beating uh, Michigan 149 to 116. I mean, that that, that sounds impossible, but. Not for them. Anything was possible.
2: So, and, and then you decide to move on after... After Loyola to go back to the NBA, you got a chance to go for the Nuggets for two years. And, and this is when you applied the speed game to the NBA. And as someone who loves fantasy basketball as much as I do, uh, clearly I was drafting all your players. I it was, you were great for fantasy basketball purposes because you had lost one game, 173 to 143. You set all time records in scoring. And, uh, but it was difficult at Denver. You just didn't have the right players. You got some injuries and you were close. You said in your book, you're close to getting it working, but it just didn't, didn't click.
3: Yeah, you know, my Nuggets players did their very best. I I, I have to credit them. Uh, Most NBA teams would not have embraced fast-break basketball and full-court defense, but they did. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of quality players who were just at the end of their careers. They were in their mid to late 30s. I had Orlando Woolridge, who could score at will with my fast-break system, but he was beginning to age and had Walter Davis from North Carolina, who is probably as good a shooter you'll ever see. And he could only play about 10 minutes a game. Uh, I remember one time uh, he made eight shots in a row and he put his fist up. And with Dean Smith at North Carolina, that meant I want to come out of the game, uh, but I'll come back when I want to. So I yelled at Walter. I said, Walter, I'm not taking you out of the game until you miss. <laughs> so he made three more shots. He made 11 in a row. And then I took him out. And But I also knew once you take him out, he couldn't go back. His knees just... Uh, stiffened up on
2: them and then you, find, you talk in your book about um that besides loyal loyal marymount the one team that bought into your system the most was actually a wnba team when you won the wnba title with diana tarazi as point guard when they totally bought into the entire speed game fast break the entire time and, and were able to lead them to a title so that was uh, quite ironic that it was a wnba team that you got your uh, great success with you running the speed game
3: yeah, it's interesting, And When I won the championship with the Lakers in 1980, I thought, this was kind of easy. we we'll probably <laughs> do uh, more and more and more of this. Well, it took me 28 years later to win with the uh, Phoenix Mercury in the WNBA. And and uh, the young women I had, uh, led by Diana Taurasi, they, they just were relentless in keeping uh, the fast break paramount. And I have to say, on the men's side, I had a lot of teams that after 10 games, if you were three and seven, they quit on you. Mm-hmm. But the women, they didn't quit. They kept saying, we're going to keep going, coach. We're going to get this. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, uh, they won a championship with the fast break.
2: I think your book, The, the Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball, it's available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores, everything. Tremendous e- Tremendous, tremendous read. Uh, very, and, and stuff that I learned that really hasn't come out before, especially the whole the Lakers, the whole situation where we, people talk about it all the time, but it's from your insight. So I thought that was really very interesting. Um, today's basketball game, the, the um, reliance on the three-point shot. Uh, just seems like every game is the Houston Rockets going down. I mean, people are comparing you to Mike Tony, which I think is completely different if you watched your games. What do you think about today's basketball in terms of just the three-point shooting again and again?
3: Well, you know, I kind of like it. I mean, I uh, I think it has changed the game. I think it has opened up the game. I mean, you have, uh, for example, in the Lakers, you have Anthony Davis, who runs classic fast break. Uh, uh, Miami scored a basket. He'd sprint, and they'd throw a lead lob to him, and he'd dunk the ball ahead of the defense. That's my kind of fast break. But the next play, he'd walk down the court and shoot a 35-footer <laughs> and make that. So uh, they, they've they shown me things that, you know, I, I never thought of. Uh, but it, it kind of fits uh, the style of, of, of NBA players and I think college players. They would rather go half speed and win than full speed and win. Uh, the full speed is too hard for the players. So they want to take their time. Uh, but you know, the outside shot is marvelous. I think it has really opened up the game of basketball. I, I enjoy it.
2: Is there any player that you wish that you coach that said why this person would have totally bought into my system, like, like Kimball and gathers and Rossi bought into my system.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. The, the one player, and he was just traded to the Washington wizards. So I'm going to, uh, uh, see how things go, uh, is Russell Westbrook. Uh, I was with Westbrook when he was drafted in Oklahoma City. I was I uh, was the assistant coach with P.J. Carlissimo there with Durant and, and Westbrook. And I thought Westbrook was so physically strong, that was his plus, but he didn't have any outside shot, and he just would put his head down and go to the basket. And I, I actually said to P.J., this young man isn't going to last because in the league when the big guys step in his way – He's going to get hurt. Well, what I didn't calculate was the big guys are afraid of him (laughs) because he'll hurt them. So it's like, get out of my way. And if you don't get out of my way, you're going to get hurt. So Westbrook would stand for, you know, my fast-break style.
2: Wow. Well, I really appreciate you, Coach Westhead, uh, for coming on IRON Sports uh, your book, The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball, just came out uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, I, I think it's a, definitely a read. Anybody who likes basketball uh, or should read this book because insight in terms of how to coach the game and also insight in terms of how to play the game. So I really appreciate Coach Wested for coming on Iron
3: Sports. Thanks, Ira. And you know, it's interesting. Anyone who has lost their job might want to read this. <laughs> well, you
0: talk about <laughs> that. I lost
3: mine. <laughs> but yeah, you. I, I lost mine fourteen out of twenty times. So.
2: Uh. <laughs> but it's interesting. You talked about even with the Lakers that when you lost your job the first time, you met you had lunch with your daughter, and your daughter is saying, "Dad, you're going to get fired today," and you're like, "I don't know about that." And I guess she was <laughs> she was right. But uh, it she was right. Yeah. <laughs> well thanks a lot you've had a, a tremendous well, thank you so much you' have a tremendous career and it's great to read about it thank you so
0: much great stuff there from Paul and Ira I know you're uh, you've got a really busy week coming up
1: yeah I've got, hopefully I'll get to two NBA Finals games we can talk about Phoenix I've never been there before but no, I'm, I'm pumped this is great you know how much I love the NBA and I love the finals so I can't wait for that and tell some stories about Phoenix and maybe Milwaukee
0: we are out of time thanks so much to Paul Westhead he's IRA Mike let's talk next Monday night it's Ira on Sport